All right, y'all. Today's guest is such a treasure. Um, I was connected with him a few months ago, read his book, um, his latest book in what feels like one sitting. It's called Hope is the First Dose. Um, Dr. Lee Warren is a neurosurgeon, war veteran, author, podcaster, and just a tender, sweet, joyful man of God. And um, his story, much like mine, involves a tragic loss. Um, he lost his son, Mitch, uh, to a brutal stabbing when he was 19. Um, this was 10 years ago. And like me, he started writing to process his trauma, his grief. Um, and what's so fascinating about Dr. Warren is he gives us basically three angles on grieving, on on hoping, on uh, restoring your life and getting back to what he calls a new beautiful okay after um, tragic loss. And we get the science perspective, which is really, really cool. And I nerd out a little, but I promise everybody can follow it. It's really neat. Um, we get his spiritual struggle as a man of faith who who doubted, like we all do when hardship happens, and had to speak truth back to himself to start living in hope. He calls hope a verb that we have agency in, which we love that here. Um, and just an experiential perspective, just what he went through personally over the last 10 years is such an inspiration um, I couldn't love this more. And, and it's not just for people who have lost family members or loved ones. This is about, as he calls it, rewiring your brain to rewire your life. Um, it's so practical. It's so biblical. Um, I just can't speak highly enough of Dr. Warren. And wherever you are in your life, you are going to learn so much from this um, about taking your thoughts captive and what that really means to start walking and living in hope and enjoy it again. So y'all are going to love this. I promise. Dr. Lee Warren, hope is the first dose. Well, Dr. Lee Warren, I've, I've read off your credentials, um, in the intro and I showed you just a second ago, but we'll show our people, um, who are watching the number of dog ears that I have from reading your newest book. Um, I'm so grateful to have you here. I'm so grateful for your message. Um, it is so incredibly personal to me and what feels like endless, number of ways. And so I'm just thrilled to have you here. And uh, you guys at home are really in for a treat. So uh, Dr. Warren, before we get into the book, get into your story, um, you know, I'm in Nashville and uh, we want to talk all about joy on this show. And something that brings me a lot of joy is, is music. So I don't know if you're yeah. a sports fan, but uh, I've always yeah. kind of envied the baseball players that get to do a walkout song. So I want to know, like right now for you, 2023, if you had a walkout song, playing behind you at this point in your life, um, what would that song be? You know, it's a great question. I, I think there's a Matthew West song that I've been listening to a lot lately called Hope Returns. Mm. Um, and it's like when you're when the world is shaking, when your knees hit the ground, and you're wondering, what do I do now? That's when hope returns. Like, don't give up. And it's, it's just a really powerful song that's resonating with me right now. So this is how it feels when standing strong. Yeah, I love that. And so perfect for your fourth book, which came out this past summer, um, Hope is the First yep. Dose, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, uh, and other massive things. Um, you are not only an author, you are a brain surgeon. <laughs> so you yep. have an impressive resume using that right and left brain, I see. Um but before we dive in, will you just tell people like why why neurosurgery, why writing, and sort of what happened in your life to bring those two things together? Sure. Um, I started out my life thinking I was just wanted to be a doctor. I never had neurosurgery on my radar. Um, I went 
to medical school. My, my parents said I never talked about anything but medicine, uh, which is kind of weird because nobody in my family was medical. We were you know, business people and pipeliners and ranchers and all those folks and came from a really small town in Oklahoma. But I pursued that dream and ended up in medical school. And then in the third year of medical school, um, my son Mitchell uh, was going to be born and I needed to rearrange my schedule a little bit so that I could have some time off when he was born. And and there were only two choices. And I could either do a month of orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery, and neither of which I had ever really thought about. And basically, because it was easier on my schedule, I chose a month of neurosurgery. And <laughs> love the that. first day on the on the rotation, the, the chief resident was operating on a little baby. And he said, hey, do you want to drill a hole in this little girl's skull? And <laughs> just by the end of that month, I was completely hooked, Maddie. There was there's just, there's computers and lasers and all kinds of cool stuff. And there's all these big unanswered questions and, and it just really fit for me. And then a, the whole series of events occurred where the Lord was gracious enough to open up a door for me to become a neurosurgeon and, and it just worked. And then, so over the course of my career, since then, I, I was blessed to have a scholarship for medical school from the air force. And so I was uh, active duty military when I got out of my training and, and I ended up in Iraq uh, in a combat hospital in the, in the, Iraq war in 2004 and five. That's what my first book was about. Um, and, and because of that experience of going to war and coming home with some PTSD and I went through a divorce and just a whole bunch of hard things happened, um, culminating in the death of my son in 2013, um, I started writing as a, as a means of processing mm -hmm. trauma and hard things and, and really found a community of people who needed words that I, for some reason, was able to put onto some of those experiences. And, and it just found um, myself and amidst a bunch of sufferers as a fellow sufferer, instead of a doctor who was just telling them how to do things. And so I, I found yeah. my kind of wrote my way out of, of the pit of despair, if you will. So. Yeah. And, and what uh, was interesting to me is that when you were writing or finishing your previous book, um, I've seen the end of you you were sort of still coming from that place of, you know, PTSD as a, as a war vet um, and kind of, to my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, more of sort of a, a research or, um, you know, experiential approach as a doctor and the patients that you work yeah. on and sort of approaching it that way. And that's when your, you call it the massive thing, your massive trauma, um, losing your son happened in finishing that book. And, and I wonder, did it, did it change your message in that moment? Did it change your understanding of trauma, I mean, physically and, and emotionally when you went from sort of being the expert to being the one, you know, walking through the valley yourself? It certainly did. You know, the you mentioned that second book, I've seen the interview, that that book started with a question that I kept asking. I, I would I would see these brain scans of people who had a particular brain tumor that I take care of a lot called glioblastoma. And, and it turns out to be the most uniformly fatal human cancer. Like almost everybody that gets that diagnosis dies within five years. Like really there's almost no tenure survivor. So it's really mm -hmm. a death sentence if you get it. And so as a Christian who believes in prayer and believes in the power of hope and all these things, and as a doctor who knows what the science says, I had this real conundrum of how do I, 
how do I doctor somebody in a compassionate way and help them hold on to hope and faith mm. and all those important things when I already think I know the outcome mm, of yeah. what's going to happen here. And so I was writing that book of what do I do to help people when I can't fix them? And that's when we lost Mitch right in the middle of that. So, so it was a big sea change for me of thinking I knew how to tell people what to do when the worst thing happened to them or their family to now being in the midst of it and finding that some of the things I thought I knew about that weren't so helpful. And so <laughs> I, I then spent some time trying to figure out what was actually helping us find our way again. Um, and I always felt sort of like I left something on the field with that book. It was more of a, we, we did it. Here's what we did. Or, you know, here's what happened to us. And, and I felt over time, like I should have written a more prescriptive approach and here's, here's how you can do it too. Yeah. And so that's really what led to the new book happening. Yeah, it is. And it is very, it's very, um, prescriptive is a good word that this is a resource I feel like in a lot of ways. Um, but equally it's, it's really a look into your heart and your own struggles. I mean, you're, you don't paint, you know, a glossy picture of what your grief and your healing was like, even as, a man of faith to lean on and as a man of, of science to, to lean on, did you rely on both those things to sort of navigate your suffering? Yeah. You know, I had a, a really weird, almost sort of outer body experience that, that started the, the night Mitch died. Um, we were standing outside of the house where he and his best friend had both been stabbed to death. And um, I, I was having all these physiological reactions in my body to trauma and shock and grief and all those things. And at the same time, my brain was telling me what I was feeling. Mm. And so it was, it was the strangest thing. Like I'm, I'm feeling anxiety. Well, you're not really anxious. You're, you're, you're scared and you're hurting and, and your amygdala is doing all this neurotransmitter stuff is going crazy. And I was having this conversation with myself and I, and I remembered that CS Lewis quote from a grief observed where he said the very first line in that book, nobody ever told me that grief felt so much like fear mm. and, and it does. And so I, I began to, sort of process my grief as a bereaved father and understanding what I was going through at the same time as, as a neuroscientist. And we had Lisa, my wife and I worked at the time in a building on the Auburn university campus that houses a um, really fancy at the time it was one of only three in the United States, a seven Tesla MRI scanner, which can be used to do functional imaging of the brain. And you can actually see what's happening mm -hmm. in somebody's head when they think about certain things. And so we had this incredible experience shortly after we went back to work where we were watching some experiments happen and they would put somebody in the scanner and say, think about the happiest day of your life, Maddie, you know, think about the, the, the most special moment you can imagine. And we could see the blood flow changes and the neurotransmitter events occurring in their brain. Really cool. So cool. Blue and red and green, yeah. you know, color changes on the screen. And then they would say, okay, now think about the, you know, the day your grandmother died or the day the worst thing happened in your life. And all these different parts of the brain would fire and, and blood flow changed dramatically. And we could see what happens when you change the things that you think about. Mm. It's incredible in real time. That's so, so wild. that led me down this whole path of, of understanding is where I tell my podcast listeners all the time, you can't change your life until you change your mind. Like we were stuck in this pattern of, of kind of swirling around the grief and swirling around the pain and not knowing what to do next. And we realized it was, it was not going to get better until we started thinking about it differently. Yeah. And what you said earlier, you, it doesn't ever stop being devastating 
but you have this parallel thing that's still true. And that is I'm, I'm still alive. I still have a family. I've got other children and grandchildren now. And, and, and there's reasons to be hopeful about the future of my life that can't all be defined by this horrible, devastating event. And so I think for me as a scientist, it was a grace of God to be allowed to see that with mm. my eyes, to see that yeah. happening in the MRI scanner so that I could then put a, put a sort of a medical stamp of approval on it. This isn't just some positive thinking yeah. exercise. It's really self brain surgery. It's really true. You can change how your brain works by changing the things you think about, which turns out to be what Paul said in Philippians four a long time ago, right? You know, yeah. if you're anxious, think about different stuff and you'll feel less anxious. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the idea like of neuroplasticity, right? I feel like that's kind of been a, yep. a buzzword with people I've talked to, which is really, really cool. Um, can you tell us, you know, kind of a, a Reader's Digest version, what does that mean um, scientifically? And then for us, for you personally, as you were doing self-brain surgery on yourself in, in your time of suffering, what did that look like, you know, practically, spiritually for you? Yeah, so for years, for, for decades, up until about 2004, scientists thought that your brain was relatively fixed from about two years old. That we, we thought that you didn't make new neurons in your brain after two or three years old that you were, and we taught it. I taught it to thousands yeah. of people. When you hit your head, you kill a bunch of neurons. You can't make them back. You've got to learn how to make do with what you've got. And that's why you shouldn't drink too much alcohol and why you shouldn't, why you should wear a helmet when you ride a bike because you can't make new brain cells. All those things are still true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, still but endorse all now, those suggestions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little caveat: we know now clearly that you do actually manufacture new brain cells every day. It's amazing. And what happens to those new brain cells is that they automatically get wired into the same patterns of thoughts, these synaptic connections in your brain between cells. So there are hundreds of billions of cells in your brain, but there are trillions and trillions of connections between those cells. And this purpose of synapses largely is to automate things that happen. Like, like when you drive your car to a place that you go for the very first time, you have to think about every stoplight and every turn and make sure you're going the right place. And you don't change the radio station because you're focused on driving, right? But after you've made that drive several times, all of a sudden you get there and you don't even haven't even thought about the fact that you're driving your car. You're listening to the radio, you're talking on the phone, you're thinking about what's going to happen when you get there. Because your brain has made circuits that automate that behavior of driving from point A to point B, right? So that's called directed neuroplasticity, this, this idea that you can take nerve cells in your brain and you can direct them to create connections between themselves that then produce actions that you don't have to cognitively think about as much. So you can use that brain power to do something else, right? So what we learned then is if you aren't purposeful about what happens with those new neurons, then you will automatic, automatically wire them into the same old patterns that you've always had. Mm -hmm. And this is why we all think as adults, often we use an excuse of, well, I do this because my parents did that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do this because that's how I, that's just how I am. It's in my genetics. Well, we know now that you don't have to, you're not your brain. You can tell your brain to change its behavior mm -hmm. and you can make yourself a new person, which again, it's always funny to me when we figure something out with science that the Bible said a long time ago, yeah. but that's what Romans two, what Romans 12, two is talking about when it says, don't be conformed to the way life's always been. Don't be conformed to the world and the mm. way it tells you to think, be transformed by renewing your mind. Like you literally can change your brain by changing your mind and by changing the things that you think about. So from on the ground for us, for example, that was 
understanding this idea that thoughts become things like mm. the, the things you think about change the neurotransmitter environment in your brain and the neurotransmitter environment in your brain is the thing that influences the hormonal state of your body and hormones affect cell DNA expression and DNA expression turns into protein expression, yeah. which changes how your body works, how your organs work, even your reproductive system and the, and the, the DNA in your eggs and sperm cells changes. And there's all this research now that says if you expose um, mice, for example, you expose them to a smell that they react to strongly and then you shock them every time they smell that thing their offspring will be afraid of that smell oh, wow. even if they've never been exposed to it. Isn't that fascinating? That's crazy. And that it's terrifying too, right? Because yeah. that means that you're afraid of some things at your baseline when you're a kid. There's some things that bother you or things yeah. that you're anxious about because your grandfather was afraid of them. Wow. And you inherited that. That's been borne out in human research in PTSD survivors uh, from the Vietnam War and in Holocaust survivors from World War II. They've shown genetic changes in the reproductive cells of fourth generations after those people, even though these folks, the fourth generation were never, you know, prisoners of war, yeah. were never Holocaust. That's victims. wild. And so th the best part about that is it's been shown in mice and in humans now that you can undo all those changes mm. by changing the way you think about those experiences. So if you expose those mice, the, the ones that have never been shocked, you expose them to the same smell and they don't get shocked, then pretty soon their DNA changes and their offspring aren't afraid of that smell mm. anymore. And so that's directed neuroplasticity. That's taking this power of the fact that we can literally change our brains and change the way that they work and deciding to apply it in a way that helps us instead of hurts us. Yeah. And so after we lost our son, for example, we're, we're spending months and years in this swirl of, of thinking that the, our family's been forever, you know, devastated by this and I can't ever find my hope and my happiness again. And I was always this guy that was, it's going to be okay. I'm really positive kind of kind of smile wired person and always had a, no matter what happened, I was like, it's going to be okay. We'll figure it out. And after Mitch died, I just wasn't so sure anymore. Mm. And I, I, am I, am I a bad father? Could I have done something differently? Mm. Could I have changed this if I said or done something or could I have stopped it? And all those things that you think. And it turns out that about five to one, the thoughts that you think inside your head when you're thinking to yourself turn out not to be true. Your thoughts uh. are generally wired for negativity you have about 40,000 negative thoughts a day and most of them are not true. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So you do, you, you have, you have a baseline negative wiring and there's a purpose behind that too. And you, we are really fearfully and wonderfully made, but the reason you have a negative baseline is because you form really powerful synapses to painful events. And mm -hmm. when you touch a hot stove, when you're a baby, for example, you don't have to touch it again when you're an adult to know that that's going to hurt you. Yeah. you. You wired in very powerfully that something red on the stove is going to, is going to cause pain to you. But the problem is humans have a limited set of neurotransmitters to transmit impulses that feel like fear or pain so that when you've burned your hand before and the, and the wiring that you've created tells you that you're going to get hurt if you do a certain thing. And then somebody hurts you emotionally, like you're, you're lose somebody like yeah. we both have, or, yeah. or somebody cheats on you or something like that happens. And that feels like pain. Like CS Lewis said, I, I didn't know grief felt like mm -hmm. fear. Then your brain can't tell the difference between the, the fear that you feel of being burned or the fear that you feel of being rejected or, widowed mm -hmm. or hurt again in some way that feels the same. Mm -hmm. And so what happens then is it triggers th those events, the, the fear 
or anxiety or, or whatever it is, triggers the same physiological stream of things that happen in your body as the real event did, which then means that you spend your life feeling and thinking a bunch of things that are based on triggers that aren't based on real events. Mm. And so understanding that, that's when you can begin to take your life back after you've been through something really hard. You can say, wait, feelings aren't necessarily facts. Yeah. Feelings are chemical events in my brain, and they may or may not be pointing me towards something that's true. And so if I really want to be in charge of it, I've got to use my frontal lobe, the, the big part of my brain, and I've got to think about what I'm thinking about. Mm. And I've got to then decide to take action only on the things that are either true or helpful or unharmful or mm -hmm. compassionate. And if I, if I act on those things, then I'm in charge of my own emotional ship and I can start to make better decisions for my own life. And those thoughts become better things that play out in better realities over time. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And you, you use the term thought biopsy, which I think is very clever. Yeah. Um, and I think my question to you is if people take this information and they learn to start thinking about what they're thinking about, um, filter it through to see what feelings, you know, are, are true. I guess my question would be, how do we still like, where's the tension between having to feel the hard grief emotions still, but not letting them drive the ship, so to speak? Do you know what I mean? Because my my bend yeah. is like yours. It's it's happy. It's hopeful. It's you know what? If I just keep going, if I just keep my calendar full, you know, this this pain will eventually like I'll, I'll outrun it, you know, and I had to actively resist yeah. that and actively make myself lament, you know, is the biblical word. So I think that's yeah. such a hard tension for people. Did you struggle with yeah, that? I think, I, I think absolutely. I think one thing that we need to say before we go too far down that path is we're talking about insights that I gleaned and you gleaned, it sounds like, over time after these massive things happen. But they don't, you don't need to put this pressure on yourself to make it all happen the day after the yeah. big thing happens when these massive things occur, because you can't. When I do take care of somebody in the emergency department that's been hurt, there's often, especially in the nervous system, there's often these injuries that we call primary injuries. And there's the, the brain or the spinal cord are so swollen that if we do surgery early, we can actually make things worse mm. for a while. So we got to let that injury settle down a little bit. And I think that's what the grieving process is about. You, you need to let yourself have some time and space to begin to, to recover from the insult before you start putting pressure on yourself to move forward. So, so hear us compassionately saying, mm -hmm. don't feel like you're supposed to change your brain and change your life the day after totally. your, your husband dies, or your son stabbed to death, you find out you have brain cancer. That's not the time, but, but there will come a time. And generally we know it. We start to feel that our life is calling us forward again. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and some people go through what we call complex grief or complicated grief and they get stuck and they get stuck in this place of yearning or ruminating or something unhealthy, or they're treating their grief with an unhealthy pattern, you know, drinking too much or something to, to try to numb themselves from it. So if you find yourself at that place where you, you know it's time to start moving forward, you're feeling the pressure of taking care of your family or your business or, or your life again, that's when it's time to start trying to apply some of these principles. But be, be kind to yourself mm. and give yourself enough time to, to start. But I think the... The, the bottom line is we have a, a responsibility 
to our creator and to ourselves and to our families and all those around us to begin the healing process at some point. Yeah. Right. And so when it's, when you know, it's time to start moving forward, then these, these things we're talking about directed neuroplasticity and, and biopsying your thinking. So you react to things that are true and all those, those things begin to be powerful tools that you can use to reclaim the ground that you've lost to trauma. But, but the big question is to, to not, over pressure yourself to orderly process through the five stages of grief because yeah. the five stages of grief were never intended to describe what happens when you lose somebody mm. acutely. The, the five stages of grief Kubler-Ross defined as what happens when somebody finds out they are dying. That oh, she was wow. studying very specifically in a scientific way how people process the news that they have terminal cancer. Mm. And she noticed that over time they behave in kind of many times fairly um, predictable ways. But what happened is that model, the five stages of grief model was sort of grabbed. And then people started teaching it to everyone is this is how you're supposed to grieve mm. when something terrible happens. And and the, the research was never intended for that has largely now been shown to not be a useful model. And so what happens then is your, your cousin who took psychology 101 thinks that you're not grieving well enough and yeah. it's been too long and shouldn't you move on and yeah. starts telling you, well, you're stuck in denial, you know, and we start hearing all these things from people that think they know that we're all supposed to process grief in a, in an orderly process. Yeah. And I'm just here to tell you as a 10 year bereaved father now, it's not orderly mm -mm. and you'll, you'll deny it for a while and you'll be really angry about it and yeah. you'll get really sad about it. And then two years later, you'll go through the whole thing again and, and you just find yourself in the, it's a maze. Yeah. But over time by learning how to correct your thinking and when some, when those, those thoughts pop up that it's your fault or you, you should have been done something different or it's never going to feel okay again or any of those thoughts, you'll start taking command of those things. There's a verse in second Corinthians 10, five that says, we have to take captive every thought. Mm -hmm. So you, you grab that thought. I call it the thought biopsy, as you said. And by the way, that came out of just that metaphor just came out of the fact that I'm a brain surgeon. So yeah. if you, if you come into my office and you say, Hey, I've been having these headaches and I say, okay, well, let's go to the operating room and I'll <laughs> cut your head open and we'll go look yeah. and see what's wrong. You say, wait, time out. You know, don't yeah, you need to not, do a scan or something first? Like you should get some data before you start mm -hmm. cutting my hair. Yeah. Right? So that idea is, is what we do with our thinking is something pops into your head and you just run with it and you don't even consider whether it's true or not. And before you know it, you've, sent off an angry text message or you've, you've, you know, you've broken a relationship or you've done something else that's caused a problem in your life because thoughts become things, mm -hmm. thoughts, thoughts that we have turn into realities on the ground. And so if you learn to put that space in there and biopsy that thought and look at it critically and say, wait a minute, not only is this thought not true, it's actually the opposite of something true. It's harmful. If I react to this thought, it's harmful. It's not going to help anybody. And that'll help you kind of get back on your feet. Yeah. I think what I, learned and what I know from reading your book is that you have heard you say like faith is a floor and when everything feels unstable if we're able to use to stand firmly on what we knew was true before the massive thing yeah. happened that those are you know the capital T truth so to speak that we speak to those false feelings or false stories in our head and and that that's where that's where I started and, and I wonder as a man of of faith, um, did you find it hard to go back to those truths? Did they seem less true to you? I mean, did you did you start to doubt some of those things? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. There's, I call it prehab. Like there's this whole process of putting good stuff in your head and in your heart that then you recall when you go mm-hmm. through something hard. And biblical truth for me is one of those things, and good music and and all those things that you can lean on when times are hard. And and what happens is you often question your beliefs, right? You is there really a God? Does God mm-hmm. care about me? Has he forgotten me? And by the way, that's what the whole book of Psalms is about. A third mm. of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Yeah. And they they show us that we have permission to complain to God yes. and say, wait, I'm, I'm really mad about this God. Yes. Like, I don't like it. Um, it, it. That's that's why it's so powerful to learn that language of lament. It's okay to express your feelings to God. He wants to hear it. But right after that happened to me, you're right. I, I, I question, I wonder, I'm like, why would a good God do something like this. Mm. And what I found, what I, what I discovered over time is that there is a, a real danger of absorbing and starting to live out bad theology in your thinking. And bad theology is when you have a belief or you start to prescribe a belief about God that would never be true of God. Mm. And so what we do is we, and we do it sometimes in a, in a way that we think is kind when somebody loses somebody, we say something like, Oh God must've needed another angel or something like that. Yeah. That's a terrible thing to say to somebody who lost a child for two reasons. Number one, it's bad theology because Mm -hmm. people don't become angels when they die. If you know what the Bible says, angels are different than people. They're created differently. And two, if it was true, God who could create the universe out of nothing and the God who could make angels and people out of nothing would then have to be really mean if he grabbed my son and turned him into an angel because Mm. he wanted another angel. It'd be horrible. Why would he capriciously take my son away so he could have another angel if he could just make one, right? So, So bad theology can put you in a situation where you are believing things about God that would never be true. And then you're putting yourself in a hole of anger and and frustration Mm -hmm. that isn't true. And you start again, working and reacting to untrue thinking. So I think the first thing is fall back on beliefs that are really true and won't change. And you will question them, but Mm -hmm. the true ones start to become and reveal themselves to be true over time. And for us, the idea that there's a resurrection that we get to Mm. see our son again someday, that there really will be an opportunity to be reunited and reconnected with him became really important for me to believe. And I had this epiphany one day where I said, wait, if that promise is true and I really need it to be true, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to live like it's true. So if that one's true, then all the other ones have to be true also. And so some of these other promises, like the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, Psalms mm. thirty four eighteen. I start looking for evidence that those other promises are true, and they turn out to be. Right. Yeah. So you're you're devastated and you're brokenhearted, and you don't know what to do next. And you'll find that all of a sudden, at the worst moment, somebody sends you a really kind text message, mm, yeah. where somebody walks into the room with just the right word, or a book shows up in the mail, or right, or you turn on the radio and your and your dad's singing a song that yeah. warms your heart or something, right? And and that's God. I believe being close to us when mm-hmm. we're brokenhearted. Yeah. Right? He's showing up and fulfilling that promise. And then you start to see other ones that are true. And over time you, you, you learn to be still and know that he is God and he's yeah. ministering to you and he's letting you heal and that your body is designed to heal. If we just get out of our own way, he wants to show us how to heal by changing our thinking. And so 
you do, you're going to question the things that you believe. And if you've done a good job of putting some really true things in your heart and knowing who to turn to and other people and in the word and different places to look for things that are true, you'll start to be able to test them and find out that they're really true. Um, test and approve God's uh, good and kind character as the Bible yeah. says. So yeah. over time, you do fall down, you do question, you do doubt, and then the things that you believe start holding you up so that the floor of how far you fall is kind of set by mm. that bedrock of things that you know to be true. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that's an important message for people who are listening who maybe haven't had their massive thing, or maybe they're not in a stage of grief or loss or anything, you know, praise God, but the importance of yeah. building those truths into your mind regularly throughout your life. And it sometimes I feel like can almost be more difficult in in the mountaintop, right, in the good seasons to really commit to building those truths into your mind and and, and building them in yeah. the foundation of your life because you're just bopping along, you know, and everything's fine. And then when something happens, like we've gone through, you know, I felt so desperate for scripture that that I was craving it and I had to kind of build those truths in real time, but just the advantage that you always have to do that on a regular basis can, as you said, kind of lessen yeah. the fall um, when the massive things do happen. And then when you are able to speak these, you know, again, biblical truths um, to sorrow, to lament, to fear, to anxiety, that that is what allows us to live in hope even in grief. I mean, that's your whole message is hope is the first dose. And I want to read a couple a couple things that you say in the book about hope because I, I just love them. You say, number one, hope is a verb, which I just feel like is fantastic. Um, hope is the belief you can get from there to here or from here to there. Probably wrote that backwards. Yeah. Hope comes from truth rehearsed, which is what we just talked about. Um, and that there's a difference in hope and faith. And that, that kind of struck me as something I hadn't ever thought about. Can you explain more what, what that means? Yeah. So I think hope and faith are, are similar in their, in their related. It's the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not yet seen mm -hmm. is what the Hebrew says mm -hmm. about faith. I think about it like this. You can have faith, and a lot of people who crash after they go through the hard thing have faith. They, they believe in heaven. They believe that there's going to be a resurrection, but their life is wrecked, mm -hmm. right? And so I saw these two things that Jesus said, John 16, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And in John 10, 10, he said, I came that you can have an abundant life. Like if it's true that we're going to have trouble, but if it's also true that we can have an abundant life, that means we have to be able to have an abundant life in a life full of trouble. Like, mm, they have to be true. Yeah. So, so then hope, the scientists define it, like you said, is the belief that you can get there from here. So that this notion that wherever there is for you, there's a path and an and you have the agency and a pathway to get to that place. But from a spiritual standpoint, I started seeing it as this, you can have faith that God can do the things that he says he can do. Like you can, you can believe yeah. that God can raise the dead and God can you know, heal all your diseases and all that stuff. Hope is the belief that he'll do it for you. Mm. Like hope is the belief so that good. he will take those things that he can do and he will do them 
for yeah. you. Like for us, will he get us through this? Will he let us be with Michigan? Will he allow us to see that there's still an and to our life and not just a but, that, mm. that this massive thing can be a thing that yeah. happened to us and not the thing around which our entire rest of our life has to evolve, uh, revolve. And so for us, hope became this living thing. And when I describe it as a verb, what I mean by that is in every case in the Bible where you look at somebody who's expressing desperation, there's there's three I can think of, two in the Psalms, Asaph and David, and then uh, Jeremiah or whoever it is that wrote Lamentations, we think probably Jeremiah. Um, they, they come to this place where they decide to, to get in a better headspace about what they're going through while they're going through it. Mm-hmm. So Lamentations is the great example. The, the city's being ransacked and, and the Babylonians have come and they've burned the temple and stolen all the artifacts and murdered the king and they pillaged the women and the babies are starving to death and all these horrible things are happening. And the guy gets to chapter three in the middle of this problem and he says, but this I will do. I will wait on the Lord. I will hope in the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He's, he's reminding himself this isn't the first time Israel's gotten hosed. It's not the first time bad things have happened. And God managed to pull us through at that time. So he'll do it again. So it's, he's remembering mm-hmm. times in the past when things have seemed impossible and they turned out not to be impossible. So the memory piece is super important. And then he decides to move towards hope, to take some sort of action. And that's so important because if you don't take action and you just sit in the pain, the pain becomes overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You, you can't escape the inertia of it until you decide to break through it and move through it. And I had to tell patients that all the time. Like it is really going to hurt for you to get out of bed after this surgery and start moving. But yeah. if you don't, it's going to hurt a whole lot more yeah. the next day. Like it's going to get worse if you don't push through that. And so hope then turns into this thing where we remember what God has done before. We believe he'll do it again. And we're going to start grabbing those promises and walking towards them and trying to take claim to them. And that starts to ease the pain and make things better. So I think faith is this element of knowing that God is able mm-hmm. and hope is this element of believing he will. I love us. that so much. I feel like that to make our theological beliefs personal to us is a way I've never thought about what hope actually is. I I just love that. It's in some way the active choice to trust, right? And that's the hardest thing I feel like in the wake of any experience that when you really believe in a sovereign God and a good God, as we both do, you have to choose to trust him again, even knowing he could have saved Mitch. He could have saved Ben, and he didn't. Yeah. And yet, he will heal us. He will redeem all of our bodies so we can be together again. I just, I think that is so beautiful. Um, I want to do. I, I have to ask you this. I don't want to do a huge sidebar on this, but as a, a man of strong faith, as a as a neurosurgeon, um, kind of what we're talking about, taking our thoughts captive, and and um, almost like having our you know, there people say like actions precede feelings. You have to act in hope. Um, what is your take on manifesting? <laughs> people talk a lot about it. I, I told it's like total like quick sidebar. We don't need to like deep dive woo woo. But I'm just curious. I I don't believe that we have some sort of magical ability to think about something and make it happen in the physical universe in that specific way. I don't believe that. Um, but I do believe that the things that we think about 
and the attitudes that we hold affect the people around us. It was, it's clear now from science that, that the way you think in your emotional state and your electromagnetic field clearly affect the, the body and the physiology of the people around us and, and your mood and your emotional state. We call it limbic resonance um, in the neuroscience mm -hmm. community. Like, like if you look in my eyes and we make eye contact and I'm having a deep emotional problem, you know what it is when you see me, especially people who are really connected to each other, like spouses and, mm -hmm. and intimate people, especially have that ability to know exactly what the other person is feeling or, or thinking because their brains are connected on a quantum level. And so you do have some power in the universe to connect and create realities around you, but I don't think it's a magic trick. Yeah. I think it has to do with, with the way God built the universe in how, I think string theory and physics probably explains a lot of it. Um, but I think it, it has to do with the way that our electrons resonate with one another. Mm -hmm. And we, and we're physically connected to each other, even if, if, across these miles that, that we're talking now that our, our emotional states and our moods affect each other. And I think that's true in the physical universe in some ways too, that God um, honors when we get our thinking under control and allow his Holy spirit to direct our steps. I think he honors that and, and makes things, um, better for us sometimes because of our faith. Yeah. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think you can manifest a million dollars in your bank account <laughs> exactly. changing how you think about money, but I think you can certainly make your days more predictably um, better for you for the most part mm -hmm. by changing and, and controlling tightly the things that you choose to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's kind of what I expected. I just needed um, the faith authority, the science authority <laughs> to sort of talk through that with me. But um, I do want to talk about um, before we sort of wrap up in a little bit, the last chapter of the book is called no old beaches and it's yeah. a really beautiful moment, a hard moment. Um, can you share that story and why you wanted to end the book that way? Yeah. So back in 2010, we took a family vacation to Kiowa Island in South Carolina, which is one of my favorite places on the planet. Um, and it was all of our kids, but one, one of our daughters couldn't come because she was working. And my wife's parents, uh, Dennis and Patty went with us and we just had this magical week on the beach. It was just this wonderful week. And it turned out to be, because we didn't know that Mitch was going to die a few years later. We didn't know that Patty was going to die in 2018. She had a really aggressive neurological disorder that, that ended her life after only being sick for about six months. And so we had, um, in 2020, we moved, my, my wife's father had come to live with us in Wyoming. Um, and we decided to move to Nebraska um, for a variety of reasons. And we had this really busy season throughout 2020 and we went through the whole COVID thing and all like everybody else did. And, and by the end of that year, we were just out of gas and we decided that we needed to take a family vacation. And Lisa got to looking at what was available and, and the same house that we had stayed in back in 2010 was available for the week of Christmas, which was kind of a miracle. Yeah, it's so good. And so we rented the house again and we thought everybody was going to be so excited about going. And it turned out that, our son Josh was unable, unable to come because they were expecting their first baby and, and our daughter Katie couldn't come because her husband had to work. And, and so only two of our living children could come. And then I was sure that Dennis would want to go because we had such a great time. But he was like, he was like, hang on, I don't think I can go. I, I have such a good memory mm. of being there with Patty and I, and I kind of want to leave that intact in my mind. I don't want to go back and mess up that memory. And so we went 
kind of a partial crew and, and we were, Lisa and I were walking on the beach one night and, and our little grandson, Jace had been playing on the beach and Lisa noticed his footprints kind of running up the sand up towards the boardwalk back to the house. And, and when I saw his footprints, I just had this insight, I guess it was a gift from the Lord and Mitch, I went back to that place thinking that I could walk on that sand where I'd been with my son and somehow sort of find something that was going to help me move forward again. And and I think Dennis thought he was going to go back to that beach and mess up something that he wanted to hold on mm. to. And what I realized when I saw Jace's footprints and then the next morning they weren't there because the tide had come and washed them away is that there aren't any old beaches. Like the beach turns over and the things that you think might be there from the past, they're not there because that beach is new every 12 hours. Right. And if you have something good in your past, the thing that you remember about it is kind of romanticized and, and built up into being something other than what it really was. Your memories aren't really true. And you can worship some of those old experiences in the past so much that you won't have new experiences in the future that can that can help you, yeah. right? And you can also want to go back and try to fix something in the past that's broken. But the truth is you can't because it's in the past and you can't go back there and repair it or learn something new from it or, re or restore yourself because of it, because it's not there anymore. And so what I learned from that time on the beach and I texted, I got on FaceTime and talked to my father-in-law and said, Hey, there's no old beaches. Like this is a huge epiphany for me. Like you can't protect an old memory and you can't fix an old memory. You got to live in the future and in the now and aim towards the future because there's, there's no old beaches. Yeah. I just thought that was such a, freeing story um and obviously coming to that place of you know just acceptance and i feel like surrender that's what's so hard that's a lot of what i talk about in my book and what i experienced yeah. is that one of your greatest you know weapons in grieving is learning to surrender those things the old beaches and the fears of going back and trying to manipulate you know the memories or the experience of grief and and just surrender over and over is how we build at least how I built a lot of my trust muscles and hope muscles and and got to a place where you could celebrate those old memories without as you said manipulating them or white knuckling them or or having them hold you back from from moving into new memories and and what you call kind of your new okay. Like there is no there is no life that looks like it looked before Mitch died or before Ben died. That's but right. there is new life, right? That's his promise. It's not to fix what breaks. It's to continue to renew us and renew us and renew us. That's right. So well that's right. I just I I can't I could go on and on. I'm just I'm the nerd in me that loves school is so fascinated with all of the science parts. So I hope everybody loved that <laughs> as much as I did. And just your joy. That's that's our whole show is like when you can walk through tragedy and learn deeper joy through it. I, I think that's one of the greatest miracles we can experience and witness as people. And I feel that from you. And um, I'm just so thankful for your work. Anybody who has gone through anything difficult, um, this is your book right here. So go get it. Um, follow Dr. Warren. You have a podcast, too, where you talk a lot about this. What's the podcast called? The Dr. Lee Warren. Oh, podcast. well, that's simple. Okay. It's <laughs> really hard to remember. Um, so go follow him. I'm telling you, you will love it. You'll be so encouraged and inspired. And Dr. Warren, how we like to end every show is just to ask you what is something bringing you joy right now? You know, I think having all these conversations, I, I 
done dozens of interviews since the book came out and and every one of them is an opportunity for me to sort of honor Mitch and 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 realize that these 10 years that that we've spent grieving over him have also built this huge number of people around the world who have been inspired by his story and and by the way that we're trying to walk out the things we've learned as bereaved parents and and so for me it brings me joy to see my family moving forward and all my kids on their feet and all these all these healings that have happened and and to meet new people like you who you know we can we can help each other grow and learn and and hold on to to hope yeah that's it hope is the first dose all right you guys go order dr warren's book go follow him um on his podcast and again, I'm so grateful for your time. 